In the 16th century, a team of university theologians and ministers got together and put together a document designed to help preachers and guide them and to really instruct young people as well. That document is called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's kind of a creedal statement of faith, like many that came before it, the Nicene Creed and the Westminster Confession and some that have actually come after it. And the goal is to provide a real simple way for us to understand the good news about Jesus. The Heidelberg Catechism is a series of questions and answers. Uh, Somebody like me or someone else would ask a question and then a child or a preacher or a group of people would respond with the correct answer or biblical answer. And so the Heidelberg Catechism begins this way. What is your only comfort in life and death? The memorized answer that everybody in the church at the time would have had is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair from my head can fall without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for good for my salvation. But because I I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This creedal Christian statement reflects that glorious truth that Paul himself communicates in the book of Romans, that Peter knew, that Augustine knew, that Luther and Calvin and Wesley knew, that missionaries and moms and dads and uh, those seated in the pew and preachers and attorneys and uh, garbage men and plumbers and videographers, all who claim the name of Christ know this truth that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and not by works. This has been the marker for historical, biblical Christianity. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and works have not any bit to do with it. So let's turn now to Romans chapter two, verse five. Paul writes this. He will render to each one according to his works. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did you guys write this wrong? I think they wrote it wrong. Let's keep reading. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. That's about works, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. He will render to each one according to his works. Has Paul gone mad? Has he forgotten what he said just 20 verses later that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe and it's the righteousness of God from faith, for faith, by faith, from first to last and works have nothing to do with it? Has he forgotten his theology? Has he just checked out? Did Tertius record this wrong? What is happening? It is to this question that we now turn. 
And in order to answer that very critical question, let's begin with Paul's audience in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. There's a marked shift in language. In the beginning of Romans chapter 2, as it compares to Romans chapter 1, Paul has been talking at the end of Romans chapter 1 about they, they, they. Now he talks to you. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you. He's talking to a different group of people. And what Paul is engaging in here is what the Greeks would call a diatribe. Paul is imagining an individual, an interlocutor, as it were, or someone who is asking him questions, an imaginary conversation partner that he would be engaging in conversation with. But recall that Paul has been preaching his very same gospel for 25 years all around the Mediterranean world. So even though he is imagining a conversation partner, he would have had faces and names likely in his head. And this imaginary conversation partner would have been a law-following Jew. Jot that down. Paul is speaking to law-following Jews. That's his audience here as he begins chapter 2. I want to show you three evidences of why I believe that Paul's audience is a law-following Jew. Here's the first one. It's over here. Paul repeats this phrase twice, to the Jew first and also to the Greek down here. Uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He is indicating here that his audience is Jews. Second, Paul says, you have no excuse, O man. Now in modern language, we might just think that that's kind of a general anyone, men and women kind of thing. But that was a common uh, phrase and common language that Jews used to use to refer to one another. So when Paul says, you have no excuse, O man, his Jewish listeners or readers would have known that they were talking to him. Finally, and probably most importantly, as we look at the rest of chapter 2, it indicates that Paul is speaking directly to law-following Jews. We'll see that in weeks to come. So that's Paul's audience. He's speaking to law-following Jews. But a caveat I think is necessary here because in N.T. Wright's biography of the life of Paul, he makes this very astute observation. He says, listen, for Paul, unbelieving Jews is not a theological category. It's not kind of this nebulous, faceless blob of people that he's just talking about some folks out there. These are people with names and faces and stories. These are Paul's parents. Remember, he came from a Pharisee family. This is Paul's mentor. Remember, Gamaliel mentored him as Paul became a Pharisee. This is potentially even an ex-fiancé. Recall that Paul came to Jerusalem to train as a Pharisee on his way to Damascus, had a radical conversion story, came back to Jerusalem and then returned to his hometown of Tarsus and spent a good deal of time there before he went out on his missionary journeys for the sake of Jesus all across the Mediterranean. We can't be sure, but N.T. Wright hypothesizes that possibly when Paul returned to Tarsus, he attempted to convert a fiancé to this new way of Jesus that he was living and being unable to do so, his marriage or his, uh, his betrothment potentially dissolved at that point. 
Regardless, what I can tell you here is that Paul is not just kind of addressing a nebulous group of people. These law-following Jews are, are people that Paul knows and loves very, very deeply. But by extension here, Paul is also creating a paradigm. Paul is also talking to the critical moralizer. The critical moralizer, this is the individual who reads the list of symptoms that Brandon talked about last week in chapter one and thinks, you know what? I don't do probably 90% of those. I stay away from the big ones and the little ones, I don't do all that often. But those people, those people out there are bad. Yes, they are idolaters. Yes, they deserve God's judgment, but not me. These are the hyper-religious, the proudly holy, the goody two-shoes. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, I know some of those folks. I know at least one of those folks. And you're probably right, but Paul doesn't care because he wants you to say, I am one of those folks. That's his goal here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll get there in a minute. Let's keep going. Now, we know Paul's audience. Let's talk about what he's talking about, the content of his message here in this pericope, this section of scripture. Paul begins Romans chapter two with this familiar word that we all know. What is it? Therefore, in this particular case, the therefore in Romans chapter two, verse one does not refer to the phrase that comes or the verse that comes directly before it, the, the verse that directly precedes it. Rather, it refers back to Paul's kind of overall thesis and what he's getting at for the whole book. So let's put it this way. Remember Romans verse 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, here is my thesis. He says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the good news. The righteous shall live by faith. God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith, from first to last. That's the good news. But what always accompanies good news? Bad news, right? When you talk about salvation, what always accompanies salvation? Your need to be saved. So Paul articulates that in verse 18, chapter one, verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So I need to be saved. I can only be saved by faith, but I need to be saved because God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. And why is God's wrath revealed? Well, that's verse 22 and 23. They exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, what Paul says is God's wrath is revealed because we have misplaced our worship. Thank you, Sawyer, from two weeks ago. We have become idolaters. That's why God's wrath is being revealed. And because God's wrath is revealed, we need a savior. And, and Paul is gonna say there are two types of these folks two types of folks who have misplaced their worship and become idolaters. Last week, Brandon talked about one of them, those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that's the sickness inside of them, the idolatry, and God gave them up to the symptoms of that disease. Verses 24 through 32 of chapter one. Again, thank you, Brandon. So in summary, here's what Paul has said. He says, God's wrath has been revealed because we've exchanged worship of God for worship of something else. In the first case, 
we've worshiped creature rather than creator. But what about the second case? What about this second group of people and what are they worshiping instead of God? That's the reason for the therefore. Paul is talking to this second group of people here. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. I love this word in the original language. It's anapologetos, anapologetos. It's two Greek words put together and meaning without and apologetos meaning apology or where we get our modern word for apology. Paul is saying you're without apology. You have no excuse. You're without reason or defense. And who is without reason or defense? Who is defenseless? Paul says, every one of you who judges. Now, this is a critical word for understanding the passage. The original Greek word there is krino, krino, and it's repeated eight times in five verses. So if you have your Bible in front of you, and I hope that you do, track along with me. I want to point out all eight times, and you can underline or circle as we go. The first one is here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment, that's occasion number two. On another, you condemn. This word condemn also is krino, the original uh, Greek language there. So it's the same word as judgment. Because you, the judge, same root word, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, once again, Paul's using a common um, a phrase that Jews would use to address one another. You who judge practice uh, such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we come to now that critical verse, verse five, that we started with that sounds like Paul is out to lunch, that he has checked his brain at the door. I assure you he has not, but we'll get there in a minute. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out here that Paul is talking about judging others. He's talking to folks who judge others. But remember, in the Hebrew mindset, so many of these concepts find their richest and deepest meaning if we imagine them within the context of a courtroom. Remember, we did that with righteousness a couple of weeks ago, and this is the same for judgment. So this judging is not just looking down one's nose at somebody, although that's bad too and you shouldn't do that, but it's more. Paul is talking about when we uh, the law-following Jew in this case, or the critical moralizer, or you and I, assume the role of ultimate judge and make a determination about an individual's standing before God. And he's saying to his fellow Jews, whom he loves very much, he's saying to his uh, fellow critical moralizers, who he loves very much, and he's saying to you and me, whom he would love very much if he was here, Hey, you have no excuse. You are defenseless when it comes to the judgment of God. Now, this would have come as a surprise to the Jew. Why? Look at verse 2. Paul says, we know 
that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. This verse right here would have received absolutely zero argument from his fellow Jews. It is one of the cardinal articles of faith in Judaism that God judges and his judgment is right and just and fair. However, at this time in the first century uh, Roman church and more specifically in the nation of Israel across the Roman world, Many in the nation of Israel, maybe including Paul himself before his experience with Jesus, believed that the Hebrew people were immune from God's judgment. Surely, they thought, out of all the nations God chose us, we have the law, we have the prophets, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're the children of Abraham. Surely we will escape God's judgment. In fact, there was a common uh, kind of tradition in Jewish culture that Abraham himself guarded the gates of hell to make sure no Jews got in, even those who didn't follow the law. See, Paul sets them up here. He says, you and I both know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And his uh, imaginary interlocutor here, his imaginary conversation partner would go, of course, of course, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But that's not me. I'm a Jew. That's not me. I follow the law. That's those other people. But now he's going to follow up with two very critical questions. Look what Paul says. He says, number one, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself will escape the judgment of God. That is question number one. Do you suppose, oh man, that you who pass judgment on those people and yet do the very same things yourself will escape the judgment of God? Paul is saying this, look, you sit on the legislative body for a province. And you and that legislative body have passed a law that it is illegal to speed on the 404. You may not go above 100 kilometers an hour on the 404, but at the very same time, you're blazing down the track at 130 kilometers an hour. You have, in turn, passed judgment on yourself. See, in the same way that Brandon said, this is not a weapon for Paul, it's, it works in the same way here. This is not a weapon for Paul. It's a neutral statement of fact. He said, you have passed the law. You have passed judgment. You do the very same things yourself. You will not escape the judgment of God. That's question number one. Then he says, question number two. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So question number two gets to the very heart of the purpose of God's kindness. He says, look, the kindness of God is not meant for you to have license or sin with immunity or do whatever you want and believe that you will never face the justice of God. That's not what his kindness and grace are for. His kindness and grace, the purpose, is to lead you back to him. That's that word repentance. I think of my son who's potty training right now. And sometimes he doesn't quite make it into the washroom. And he'll make a little mess in his little pants. 
He will. He's two. And so we call it a little mess in his little pants. And that's okay. We show him grace. We love him. We say, hey man, you're going to try again. We're going to do it again. And next time you have to go, make sure you let dad know. Do I do that so that he can feel for his entire life when he's like 45 and he's in a boardroom somewhere or when he's 25 and he's in a locker room somewhere or when he's 16 and he's in his class, he goes, you know, my dad was always really gracious to me. I feel like I can poop myself right here. Of course, of course not. Of course not. That's not why I'm kind and gracious to him. I'm kind and gracious to him so he can learn and grow into maturity. That's what Paul is saying. You have misunderstood the purpose of God's forbearance and patience and kindness, not knowing his kindness is meant to help you to grow into maturity. It's not to give you license to mess yourself whenever you darn well please. I promise I won't use any more washroom illustrations for the rest of our time together. Now he's got him because he's articulated this statement that he knows his imaginary conversation partner would agree with. And he's asked them two critical questions and he's going to cut right to the heart of the disease. Just like we talked about last week. Remember, behavioral sin is a result of misplaced worship. And Paul is going to say the exact same thing here. Listen very closely. Judgment of others is a result of misplaced worship. It's a result of idolatry. You might be thinking, idolatry, Luke, judging others is, I've not elevated something else to the place of God. Yes, you have. Let Paul prove it to you. Verse five, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, your judgment is coming from your hard and impenitent heart. These two words in the original language are absolutely critical. I'm going to make sure we underline them. Please underline them in your Bible. Hard and impenitent. In the original language, this word hard is sclerotes, and this word impenitent is amatanoetos. Let me say that again. Amatanoetos. Greek's hard for me, like I told you. Here's the deal. Here's why that's critical. Because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. Remember, Old Testament's mostly Hebrew, so the Greek version of the Septuagint. These two Greek words translated here, hard and impenitent, are used always and only about idolatry. They're not used for any other situation. Your heart is hard and impenitent. And as a result, you have become an idolater. You have elevated something or someone else above to your mantelpiece and has put that person in the place of God. If you are judging someone else, you are an idolater. There's no other way around it. You might be thinking, okay, Luke, I get that. Paul is saying, as a result of my heart and impenitent heart, I'm judging someone else. And that's used for idolatry all the time in the Old Testament. But how is judgment idolatry? And if you're asking that question, please write this down. Judgment of others is idolatry because you are usurping 
the judgment throne. Judgment of others is idolatry because you are usurping the judgment throne. There are those who worship money in place of God. There are those who worship actual physical idols made of wood and stone in place of God. There are those who worship power in place of God. And there are those who worship themselves in place of God. And as a result, you judge others. Judgment of others is idolatry because you have misplaced your worship. You're worshiping self and not creator. God is sovereign, holy, and perfect. He's the only one who can judge impartially, fairly, or rightly. We've already agreed with that up here. So in judging others, you are displacing the real judge and inserting yourself into the place of God. Judgment is idolatry. It's not just unfortunate. It's not just something that pushes others away from you. It is evidence that you are sick on the inside. It is a symptom of the real disease that you have knocked God off of his judgment throne and you've set your rear end down in a place where you do not belong. Yikes. So let's stop here. Let's come up for air a little bit. I want to do the NLT, the New Lucas Translation. It's based on some of the Greek words and the observations that we've made here to once again kind of review what Paul has said so far. And then we're going to jump into verse 5. We don't have much time left. Stick with me here. Paul says, Therefore, my fellow Jews who pass judgment on others, your own sin is inexcusable. Why? Because in passing judgment on another, you judge yourself. Because you, the judge, do the very things you're passing judgment about. Now, we agree that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, correct? How have you concluded then, my fellow Jews, those of you who practice the very thing you're judging, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you look down your nose at the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, just like you look down your nose at others? Do you not know that the purpose of God's kindness is to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and stubborn heart, you are putting wrath in your eternal retirement account so that it will be waiting for you when God reveals his righteous judgment. Yowza. Yowza. Now, let's tackle verse 6. And now that we kind of understand where Paul is going here, this might make a little more sense to us. Paul writes this. He says, he will render. I love this original Greek word here because the Greek word is apodidomi, apodidomi, and it means pay back. God will pay back to each one according to his works. Keep reading. To those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribu tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. 
Now, we could get into all the nuances and all the Greek words and all this stuff here, but I want to take a little bit more of a broad view of the passage, a 30,000 foot view of these several verses here to communicate just this critical thing that Paul is trying to get across. What Paul has here is a main point. And then he's going to talk about two examples of his main point and then reiterate his main point. And what that is, is a chiastic structure. It's like one of those, uh, you know, those dolls where you open it up and then there's another little one inside and open it up and there's another little one inside and then you put it all back together again for the big doll. That's a little bit what Paul's about to do, but he's going to do it from a literary perspective. So watch this. He begins with his main point. Paul says, he, that is God, will render to each one according to his works. That's that sticky wicket that we talked about at the beginning of the message. Really? He's going to render each one according to his works? I thought this was by faith through grace. But Paul says he's going to render each one according to his works. Second thing he does is he gives an example. Person A. Person A who does good. Listen to what Paul says. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now he uses an example of person B who does not do good. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now Paul's going to start to put the doll back together. He gives person B once again as an example. Here it is. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Back to person A, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Back to his main point again, which serves as a conclusion, for God shows no partiality. Do you see it here? It's his main point. He talks about person A, then person B, then person B, then person A, then back to his main point again. Okay, so now that we see the context, let's talk about what Paul is doing here because it's really brilliant. So, Is he A, contradicting himself? No, Paul's way too smart for that. We can give him the benefit of the doubt. B, is he talking about eternal rewards, that God will reward us for the work that we do in this life? No, there's no indication of that in this context. Paul would have been pulling eternal rewards out of nowhere. What's he talking about? He's talking about judging others. Okay, so is he talking about, some scholars would suggest that faithful Jews who reject the Messiah will be rendered according to their works. No, he's not talking about that. Again, no context of that here, and it doesn't align with any of Paul's theology. Or is he talking about, you know, when you have a change of heart, then subsequently and consequently, you'll have a change of life. Once your heart has changed, then you will be one of those people who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor. No, he's not talking about that either. Once again, there is no context for that. There's no indication of that here. What he's talking about is that God will render to you according to your works. Do bad, you get bad things. Do good, you get good things. That's it. Simply put, neutral statement of fact. But listen very closely to what Doug Moo writes in his commentary, and this is absolutely extraordinary. Paul's purpose in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, is to establish the principle that God will judge everyone on this basis, by works. Not by religious heritage or national identity. Paul's focus is on the standard of judgment. Heresy, heresy. I know, I know for those of you who know your Bible, you're thinking that. But listen to what Doug Moose says. He goes on. 
Paul never denies the validity of this principle, but he goes on to show that, listen, no one meets the conditions necessary for this principle to become a reality. No one meets the conditions necessary for this principle to become a reality. If we're judged on the basis of works, no one is good enough. And Mu goes on. He says, once his, that's Paul's doctrine of universal human powerlessness under sin has been developed, it becomes clear that the promise can, in fact, never become operative because the condition for its fulfillment, consistent, earnest seeking after good, can never be realized. Aha! And that's why we need Jesus. Because no matter who you are or where you come from, what your background is, whether you're the pagan who worships, you know, created things in chapter one, or whether you're the critical moralizer who thinks you don't need Jesus from chapter two, we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us can live up to the standard. None of us meet the conditions. As Paul would say, no one, not even one seeks God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Doug Moo would say, no one meets the conditions necessary for this principle to become a reality. Everyone is rewarded on the basis of their works. And because God is an impartial judge, no one's works are enough. We all fall short. Even the hyper-moral, religious, judgy McJudgerson, we fall desperately short of that standard that he's just articulated. Let's put it this way. If I ran and tried to jump over the Grand Canyon, I might get five, six feet. If an Olympic athlete that does the long jump for a living ran and tried to jump over the Grand Canyon, he might get 25, 28, 30 feet. And he might look back at me and go, man, I got a lot further than you. But within seconds, both of us would be kersplat on the bottom of the Grand Canyon. That Greek word kersplat just means flattened. None of us wins. He didn't win because he jumped further than I did. Both of us have 5,265 feet to go because the Grand Canyon's about a mile wide. This is what Paul is trying to articulate. He's saying, okay, if you're judged on the basis of your works, how do you fare? How'd you do? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but anyone who lusts after a woman in your heart, you already committed adultery. You heard it was said, don't murder, but anyone who hates his brother in his heart is already murdered. You think you're okay because you don't practice homosexuality from chapter one, but you're a gossip, an inventor of evil, insolent, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and you disobey your parents. You might jump 30 feet, somebody else might jump five, somebody else might jump 60, but all of us are on level playing field before the foot of the cross. And he wraps it up with that one main point. God is an impartial judge. And each of us is in desperate need of his extraordinary grace, even, potentially even especially, the critical moralizer. So let's conclude this way. I want to do the NLT, the New Lucas translation of Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And then I want to ask this really critical question. How do I know I'm judgy? (laughs) How do I know if that's me, if I'm that critical moralizer? So here's Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. God will pay back each one of us based on the work we've done. 
to the one who patiently does good and seeks good in all things, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey God's truth, but pursue self-interest, they will face God's wrath. Again, simply put, the end game for all those who do evil is categorically bad. The end game for all those who do righteous is categorically good, both Jews and Greeks. This is all true because God shows no partiality. But the extraordinary news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God does not show partiality, but he does show grace. He does show grace. So when the pagan from chapter one or the critical moralizer from chapter two calls out and falls upon the grace of God, what we find in him is kindness and goodness and mercy and patience beyond our wildest dreams. That is the gospel of grace. Here's the deal. <clears throat> None of us want to admit that we're judgy. I mean, hear people say it all the time. I'm the least judgmental person you've ever wanted to meet. If you have to say you're the least judgmental person I'll ever want to meet, you're a judgmental person. I just want you to know that. Like, no one wants to believe that they look down their nose at others. No one wants to believe that they make a judgment about someone else's position before God in their heart. No one wants to believe that. But there are some signs, some signs that might help us understand that we might lean a little harder into kind of this judgment space. And it's something that we need to repent of and fall uh, before Jesus. So listen, uh, here's our final question. How do I know if I'm judging? I got, a, I got a couple of signs for you. Number one, if you're a gossip, if you're a gossip, it's because you've made a judgment about someone else in your mind and you are sharing information about them, typically to make them look bad. And, and information that's unnecessary, information that's not helpful, information that's not yours to share. The root of gossip is idolatry, it's judgment. You've placed yourself on the throne of God. You've not allowed him to be the eternal righteous judge. You've become the eternal righteous judge and you wanna tell somebody else about it. Gossip's not just gossip, it's a form of idolatry. Love you. Of you, but it is. Number two, blame. When you blame others for stuff that goes on in your life, rather than take responsibility, especially when it comes to relationships, it's because you've put yourself in the place of God and become the ultimate judge. Listen, let's, let's put it this way. Think of the last three relationships that went sour for you. Dating relationship, working relationship, marriage, relationship with your kid. Why'd they go bad? Tell me, why'd they go bad? Uh, did they go bad because that other person did this or that other person said that or that other person see that? That's blame. Not taking responsibility for your own actions, you've placed yourself on the throne of God. You've become an idolater. You have elevated yourself to that judgment seat. And it takes shape in your life as blame. Number three, your sins are never the worst since. <laughs> you know what, this has been identified in, in psychology. Freud uh, called this the moral gymnastics projection. Uh, Thomas Hobbes was a, a political philosopher. He wrote this, he talked about people who are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. Anytime anybody was, is to say, hey, you list the top worst sins, it's always stuff that they've never done, right? 
No one ever says, you know what? I think the worst sin, it's probably gossip. That's probably the worst one. Why? Because we all do it. We want to say, you know, the worst sin is probably genocide. Why? Because we bias toward ourselves. We posture that question toward ourselves to excuse ourselves. And Paul says, you are without excuse. You've done the very same things. And when you start to believe that your sins are not the worst sins, somebody else's sins are the worst sins, you've become an idolater and you've taken the judgment seat back from God. Number four, you mistake opinion for truth. You mistake your own opinion for truth. You might have an opinion that someone else does something that you shouldn't be doing. That person goes out to the club too much. They clubbing all the time. Nobody's been clubbing for like a year, but you know, they, they go out to club all the time. Or that person is too flirty or that person is too power hungry. And that's the truth. No, it's not. That's your opinion. And if you've mistaken opinion for truth, you've elevated yourself to the judgment seat of God and usurped that, knocked him off. And that, my friends, is idolatry. Finally, and this one might come as a surprise, how do you know if you're judgy? If you have low self-worth. Some of us might think that the solution to low self-worth is by telling ourselves that we're worth it. Or some of us might think that the root problem is low self-esteem. It's not. The root problem is that you judge others and you judge yourself. You've taken away God's rightful position as righteous judge. And as righteous judge, he has said to you that you are covered in grace, that you are extraordinarily valuable. And I know I don't want to make light of or overly simplify struggles with low self-esteem. I know that that's a real thing. My heart goes out to you. But I would say that God himself, the eternal creator, omniscient, omnipotent, holy and righteous God that's far beyond anything we could ever even dream, says to you, I am an impartial judge. And as impartial judge, your works don't live up. But I, at the cross, have done what you could never do. And so when I see you, I see you as my son, my daughter, my friend, God says, a recipient of grace. Whether you're the unrighteous, licentious pagan from chapter one or the critical moralizer, Judgy McJudgerson, from chapter two, we all find grace at the foot of the cross. Let's close this way. If you find that Paul is talking about you in Romans chapter two, verses one through 11, how do you fix it? I want to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller to answer that question. You preach yourself the gospel every day. You preach yourself the gospel every day. You remind yourself of the good news about Jesus, that you are loved and valued. And in order to do that today, I actually want to revisit how we started with this declaration from the Heidelberg Catechism. 
this declaration that represents thousands of years of biblical historical Christianity, this declaration that Paul seems to depart from in Romans chapter 2, verses 5, which he clearly does not. And I want us to read it together. So I'll ask the question. The Heidelberg Catechism will be up here on the screen. And wherever you are, in your living room, in your bedroom, even if you've taken a break to go to the washroom, whatever it is, your family around, your friends, speak this out loud and speak it over yourself. Let's declare this truth together. What is your only comfort in life and death? Read with me. That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the good news, the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ for the licentious pagan and for the critical moralizer.